This week we are continuing this series. We're in week number two. Last week we started talking about shame and what it is, what it does to us, and most importantly, beginning the process of what we can do about it. And we're going to begin that process of what we can do about it today. We're going to continue that next week. Next week's a big week. And then in week number four, we're going to even talk more about that. Last week, we introduced an effective way, perhaps, for us to think about shame as it relates to our lives day in and day out. And we said that it's kind of like this, that each one of us has this personal attendant in our lives, and they attend to everything. But this happens to be what we would call a shame attendant. This attendant goes everywhere we go. It is in tune with every thought that we have, with every desire that wells up inside of us, with every emotion that we experience. And this attendant is willing and ready and is going to advise us as we are writing the story of our lives. But sadly, somehow, the theme of that story, because of our shame attendant, is often this. You're not enough. You don't measure up. And you never will. That's what our shame attendant continues to tell us. And that shame attendant is helping us write our story. And it's from a perspective of disintegration. Disintegration. And that's how our shame attendant wants us to think. And that's how our shame attendant wants us to function. Which is the opposite of how God intended us to function in this life. God desires that we are integrated relationships. God desires that we are integrated with him, and he desires that we are integrated with other people around us as well. But last week, we saw that the evil one does not want those type of relationships that God has designed us for. In fact, shame and this disintegrated thinking that comes with it, that is evil's most powerful, most used weapon against us. There are weapons that drive us away from God, and there are weapons that actually drive us away from other people. <coughs> Pardon me. This disintegrated thinking, it's offered up by shame, this shame attendant. And here's what the shame attendant is saying to us. It's this great fear that the shame attendant creates inside of our lives. And the fear says this, if they, the people around me, or if God gets to know me, the real me, if you get to know the real me, my shame attendant says that you will abandon me, you will leave me, you will walk away from me, and you will leave me alone. That's what my shame attendant says to me. It's the very same shame attendant that led Adam and Eve to hide from God when they were in the garden. We talked about that last week. Because in their shame, the shame attendant said, this God who created you, this God who you have been talking with, this God whom you have been walking with, this God, the shame attendant said, will abandon you because of what you have done. And it's the same for you and I. The shame attendant tells us the very same thing. 
the attendant says, if God really knew the real you, he would leave you. And to me and you, when we hear that, then inside of our lives, something screams, this is unsafe. This is so unsafe. This relationship between me and God, unsafe. This relationship that I have between me and you, it's unsafe because you might abandon me. God also might abandon me. And that leads me to a very specific response, one of four. I'm either going to fight, and I, so I might fight you, or I might fight something else as a diversion so you don't see the real me. So I might fight, or in that unsafe status, I might uh, take to flight, I might run away, or I might become overwhelmed and just freeze. My emotions might be so much that I just can't do anything, make any decisions, I freeze, or I began to camouflage my, myself, cover up areas that I don't want you to see and pretend that everything's okay. I might camo. Now, all of us are wired a little bit differently. And our shame attendants, they come to us in different ways according to how we're wired. So maybe for you, it might look like this. You might say, you know, I work hard. I work really hard so that I can not be a failure, so I can be successful. I work hard. But maybe somebody else in your life, they're getting better results than you're getting. And so your shame attendant comes to you and says something. Pardon me. Your shame attendant comes to you and says, you know what? You see those results they're getting? That's because you're a failure. Or maybe, maybe for you, you weren't included in uh, something or invited to be a part of something. And your shame attendant comes to you and says, listen, they really don't like you. They don't want to be around you. They think you're too young or they think you're too dumb or stupid or immature. They don't really want to be around you. Or maybe your shame attendant comes to you because maybe you made a mistake at work and no big deal, just a small mistake maybe. Something just slipped through the cracks and you didn't notice it. But your shame attendant comes to you and says, listen, I knew that was going to happen because you're broken. You don't have it all together. And soon enough, they're going to realize that you don't have it all together and they're going to abandon you. You don't have it all together, your shame attendant says, and you never will. Or maybe for you, your shame attendant says something like this. Maybe you're having a conversation with somebody. And maybe somebody that you feel like might be more important to you walks in the room. And the person that's been talking to you now shifts and they leave you and they go talk to that person that apparently is more important than you are. And your shame attendant says something like this to you. Well, you know what? You, you just really don't matter. You don't matter at all. Regardless of how your shame attendant approaches you and how it manifests, this next statement is true of all to us. If you really know me, you will leave me. If you really know me, you'll leave me. So I have to do something so that you won't leave. My shame attendant tells me you're going to leave if you really know the real me. 
So that means I'm going to have to do something to guarantee that you will not leave me, that God won't leave me, and that you won't leave me. So that's when we have a tendency to think, well, that means I can't be a failure, because if I'm a failure, you're going to leave me. So if I could just be successful enough, if I could just be successful enough, then you won't abandon me, you won't leave me. Or if I could just make myself needed enough, if you really knew how much you needed me, so I'll make sure you need me so that you won't abandon me. Or we might say, you know what? You might think I'm stupid. So if I could just learn enough, if I could just get enough knowledge and study enough and know enough and learn enough, then you won't leave me. Or we might say, if I could just show you how loyal I am to you, if I could be loyal enough and show you that I'm smart enough and I'm okay enough, then maybe you won't leave me. Or perhaps we say, if I could just get everything just right, if I could make no mistakes and look around me for all the mistakes that might be there and correct those mistakes, then maybe you won't abandon me. If I can be just unique enough and different enough and individual enough, maybe then you won't leave me and you'll think I'm okay. If I could just be strong enough and, and overcome any challenge that comes my way and any obstacle that comes my way, if I can avoid being weak, then maybe you won't leave me. And all of that to say, if I could just be that person, then maybe you won't leave me. You'll accept me. You'll love me, perhaps. You'll respect me. You'll value me. You'll hear me when I say something. You'll see me. You'll understand me if I can just be that person. See, in some way, we all do this. And what we're doing when we do these things, we're trying to manage the way that shame is making us feel. The way shame makes us feel physically, we talked about that last week. The way shame makes me feel emotionally, we talked about that last week. The way shame makes me feel spiritually, and the way shame makes me feel like you are going to abandon me. So if I can just do this, if I can manage this, then I'll be okay. It's all part of our shame management systems. We create them ourselves. We don't even know we're doing it. But here's the big thing about those. They don't work. Our shame management systems do not work. Let me take a couple of examples for you to see if, you, if it makes, makes this clear. So if I have a fear <clears throat> that if I make a mistake that you will see through me somehow and know that I'm kind of a phony, so I can't make mistakes, I need, I need everything to be just right because I'm afraid you'll leave if, you, if the, everything's not just right. So my shame management system might say, Harley, you've got to cover, you cannot make any mistakes. And so I become a perfectionist and I become really, really critical of myself so that I don't make a mistake. Or if I do make a mistake, then I just get overly 
overly hard on myself, almost to punish myself for making that mistake. And then I become overly critical on the pe- of the people around me as well. And I do the same thing to them. And here's the result. Why was I doing that? I was doing that because I was trying to manage my shame, my shame management system. And the ultimate goal of that was so that you won't leave me. But that shame management system almost guarantees that you will leave me. You see the problem? Because as I become a perfectionist for myself and over you, you have to get away from me so that you can just breathe in life. So perhaps, maybe I don't feel included. Maybe I feel rejected. Maybe I don't feel accepted. And I might think to myself, okay, I'm afraid if you reject me, if you don't like me, if you don't accept me, that you're going to abandon me. So my shame management system says, if I can just be liked by you, then you won't abandon me. So I go over the top with enthusiasm. I go over the top to make you somehow want to like me and accept me. And in doing so, I might begin to appear to you as shallow, or I might just wear you out with my enthusiasm. And they might begin to think, oh my goodness, Harley, man, he's such a phony. And eventually... As I go over the top trying to make you like me, what I actually do is drive you away and you leave me. Do you see what's wrong? The system I'm using to manage my shame ultimately drives you away and you abandon me anyway. It guarantees abandonment. So if I'm afraid that if I'm weak, that you'll see me as weak and you'll leave, you'll abandon me. So my shame management system says, Harley, if I can just be strong enough, they won't leave. So if I, if I can make sure that I win, no matter the cost, and in doing so, I might become a bully, which of course is going to drive them away. So often, The very strategy that we use to avoid shame and the fear that it brings that you'll abandon me, that shame management system that we have crafted and we have perfected, and it's all so that you won't leave me, actually leads you to leaving me. And then I am alone, just like my shame assistant told me I would be. And I am isolated from you, just like the evil one wants me to be. So it leaves me isolated with just me and my shame. What we attempted to show you last week was that when we sin, which means we do anything that God says, that's not the way I would do it, When we sin and we fall short of God's standard, the way he would do things, then we are ripe 
for shame to leap on us. And, and with that comes this fear of exposure. That fear that says, if they see the real me, they will leave. Which is why Adam and Eve grabbed up all the fig leaves, right? And they covered themselves up. That's why they, they hid from each other with the fig leaves. They camouflaged from each other. And that's why they went and they hid from God. The shame attendant was telling them, listen, Adam, Eve, when you are exposed, when you are vulnerable, they're just going to leave you. Adam, Eve's going to leave. Eve, Adam's going to leave. And guess what? God's already out of there. He's leaving. You see? Here's what that feels like. It feels like you, you see me you see me struggling and you make a choice instead of coming to me, you make a choice to go the other way. That's what that feeling of shame is saying. Imagine with me for a moment. What I'm going to try to do is, is craft a scenario that we can understand what this feeling of abandonment is all about. All right. This feeling that shame is saying they're going to leave you. They're going to leave you. God's going to leave you. They're going to leave you. So imagine with me for a moment, you're a child and you're lost in a store, but your mom knows that you're lost and your mom knows that you're afraid. In fact, at one point she sees you across the store and at the same time you see her across the store, your eyes meet and then she turns around and she walks the other way. She rejects you. She abandons you. Now, just trying to describe that hypothetical situation in me creates tension for me. It creates some of those feelings and some of those emotions. There's physical reactions to that scenario, and there are emotional reactions and responses to that scenario. That is the feeling of abandonment that shame is trying to create in your life. And we will do whatever we can do, whatever is necessary for us to avoid that feeling of abandonment, even if it means ourselves running away first and hiding in isolation. Because shame always leads to disintegration in our thinking. And shame always leads to disintegration in our relationships. Now get this. This is so much more powerful than just that example. Because it's not just that I'm lost. Mom doesn't know that I'm lost. No, 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 no. Instead, my mom knows exactly where I am, and she knows exactly how I feel, and she can hear me calling for help, and she's not coming. She walks the other way. Our shame management strategy is an effort to ensure that we will never experience that feeling. 
and all of that shame and how it makes us feel it is just part of this life for each one of us and so i guess the big question for today is this yeah yeah you're probably thinking maybe even right now okay so if that is reality for my life how do i get rid of it so we've got some good news and bad news bad news first we can't get rid of it for good sorry not this side of heaven we can't but here's the good news we can discover how to respond to shame and we can discover how to respond to our shame attendant when that shame attendant pops up we can't stop it but we can respond differently you see in week one we said that shame kind of functions on its own rails it's kind of like uh a roller coaster and as that car leaves the gate it is really difficult to stop it once it gets going so if we can't keep that shame from showing up and leaving the gate then what are we going to do with it when it does show up you see we've already determined that our shame management systems don't work they actually guarantee the abandonment so they don't work so we need a new response so when it shows up we may not be able to stop it from showing up but we can learn how to change the rails how to get out of that ride and get into another car another ride when shame shows up and here's why if you're a note taker this would be a great one to write down we always encourage people if you don't take notes or it's too dark in here to do that take a picture of this screen when some notes pop up because that may be one you want to remember and here comes one I think I would encourage you to remember shame is a liar and here's how we know it God didn't abandon us shame's a liar God didn't abandon us. We talked about this last week, that God came looking for Adam and Eve. And guess what? He came looking for you too. In the garden, God took his light and he shined it upon shame. And God began right there in the garden to take care of their shame in the garden. I love this after I cough. Pardon me. God didn't just come for us. He also had this additional idea to keep us from feeling abandoned and feeling isolated. And I love how he gives us this first hint all the way back at creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said this. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. It's not good. Once again, God did not have to say that. God didn't have to say it wasn't good. He could have said anything. You know, um, Adam, boy, he surely could use another person to play checkers with. I'm going to make him somebody. Or he could have just as easily said, well, Adam, I guess you need to get going. You need somebody 
who's going to help you populate this whole earth thing. So you can't do that alone. So Adam, I'm going to give you a biology lesson here. Here you go. No, that's not what he said. God didn't say that. He chose to say this. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And I want to promise you this. Ever since then, the evil one has been trying to get us alone, to get us isolated. God said this when creation was still perfect. Don't miss that. And yet God said, in this perfection, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. It's not good, he said. That comment says something huge about God's design for humans. And in the old covenant, God tells us that he designed us for relationships. It's not good for us to be alone. And then in the new covenant, that was the old covenant, in the new covenant, he wants to take us to a place that is a very special kind of relationship. And here's what it is. God designed a living community called the church to help us cope with shame carefully, kindly, and tenderly. In the church, God created this platform for these special relationships that are needed for vulnerable people like us that we can enter in and 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 we can bring our shame into this environment where it is handled by others carefully kindly and tenderly and by God's design these very relationships inside of this special thing called the church God can use that to help us begin to respond differently to shame. I love how Paul gives us this same idea, the same concept by using parts of the body, the physical body, as an example. I, I want to offer this to you. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, in fact, some parts of the body, he's talking about the physical body as a metaphor for this spiritual body called the church. He said, in fact, some parts of the body, the physical body, that seem the weakest and the least important, he said, are actually the most necessary. In other words, every part of the body is necessary and every part of the church body necessary, he says. And he goes in verse 23, the parts we regard as less honorable. In other words, the parts that the parts of the body that might be dealing, we could say maybe dealing with shame more. He says are those are the parts with uh, that we clothe, we take care of, we clothe with the greatest care. And he describes it further. So he says we carefully protect those parts. That should not be seen. In other words, those parts inside our physical body, and he's, the metaphor is the spiritual body called the church, those parts maybe that are struggling, they feel weak, they're struggling, they're hurting, they're, they're, 
they're devoured by perhaps shame and other things. He says, oh, the church has to be so careful as they protect those parts with the greatest care. I love that. That is part of God's amazing design for this thing called the church in order to help us deal with something so horrible as shame. But wait, there's a problem. There's a problem. And it's called brokenness. You see? The relationships inside of the church are made up of people like me who are broken and hurting. And that brokenness, the parts of my brokenness and your brokenness and anyone's brokenness, that they are not yet allowing God to heal means that we do all of this church thing imperfectly. And let's face it, the church has a less than stellar reputation in the shame department. And because of that, people believe that they can't be vulnerable inside the church. We think to ourselves, we can't tell them about that, my shame. We can't admit our shame to them because let's face it, they will abandon me. That's our fear. They will abandon me if I admit my shame to them. Our shame attendant says this, no, 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 no thanks, people. No thanks, church. Our shame attendant says, they will be so judgmental. Don't you know, the shame attendant says to us, they teach against that, what you just did, or what you did years ago. They teach against that. So then I began thinking, well, if I'm vulnerable with them, and I let them know about my shame, well, they might shame me even more than what I'm feeling right now, the shame I'm feeling now. So we say to ourselves, no thanks. I don't want any of that. I'm out. And that, that thought right there is the center of the evil one's master plan. It's a brilliant plan. Evil makes us fear the very thing that God has designed to help us switch the tracks of shame, to help us get out of that car ride and get onto another ride, a more healthy ride. And evil makes us afraid of that very thing that could offer us some help. Shame is so muddy. It's a pretty dirty business. But God wants to take his light and shine it on our shame attendant and call that shame attendant out of hiding. And he wants to point it out and he wants to acknowledge it and he wants to help us switch tracks. In the process of learning how to deal with this shame by shining a light on it and calling it out and switching those tracks, we can only do that because of the death of Jesus and the resurrection three days later. 
And then Jesus designed this thing, this community called a church. And he designed it to help us reconnect with God, to integrate with God, and to integrate with others. Let me give you an example of shame while Jesus was walking this earth. It's recorded by John in his biography of Jesus. Here, here's how it, 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 this snapshot begins, John chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Verse 2, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So this, they're saying this, this is a question of shame, the disciples are saying. Now I want you to understand, the disciples are Jews in the whole community here of the Israelites. The entire religious community, including the disciples of Jesus, are saying, shame on that man, or shame on his family. That's what they're saying. This very community that should be a safe place for this man, it is broken. The community is broken. And that community is perpetuating the cycle of shame. And here's how Jesus responds to the question. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. I love this. It's as if Jesus is saying, all right, fellas, listen. Uh, it's not shame at all. Guys, you're the one bringing up shame I didn't bring up shame. Verse 4. Jesus says, We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I'm here, Jesus, while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light. And Jesus is going to shine God's light on shame. But what does that look like? Well, right here in this instance, at this moment for this man, it looks like this. Verse 6, then he, Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Listen, Jesus was not afraid to get his hands dirty. Jesus was not afraid of the shame attendant that was saying to him, you know what, Jesus, what are the people going to think if you get dirty, Jesus? Jesus wasn't afraid of that. And so he took that mud and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Now take note here. Jesus was also not afraid to jump right in the middle of that man's shame that had been heaped upon him his whole life. And Jesus was not afraid to take his holy hands and to place them on what everyone else around him said, that man is full of shame. 
Jesus was not afraid to place his holy hands there. Do you get it? Do you see what's happening here in this moment? This is so powerful. Jesus went to this man and he was looking for him to rescue him from his shame. And Jesus did not care what the community-wide shame attendant was saying. Verse 7, Jesus told him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man, he went and he washed and he came back seeing. In that moment, Jesus took care of his shame. At that moment, he had taken his light, he shined it onto the shame and the shame attendant, and he took care of it. But what happens next? It is so typical what comes up next. Verse 8, the neighbors of this blind man, his neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggars, beggar, singular, his neighbors shamed him. And the community-wide shame attendant said, you guys are going to have to shun this blind beggar or else you will be tainted by his sin. So they disintegrated. They separated themselves from him, and they shamed him, because obviously he did something horrible, or his parents must have. So here's what happened. His neighbors and the others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. Others said, no, 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 no. He just looks like him. But the beggar, notice, he is still known as the shameful beggar at this moment. He, He still has shame all over his life. But the beggar kept saying, yeah, 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 it is me. Hey, it's me. I'm the one, same one, it's me. And he is thrilled. He is so excited. He's celebrating because he was blind. He was the blind, shameful beggar. And because of Jesus, he, the shame is now gone. And here's what they ask in verse 10. Who healed you? What happened? And he told them. The man they called called Jesus. He made mud. He spread it over my eyes. And he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Wash yourself. So I went and washed. And now I can see. That's it. And they said, well, where is he now? They asked. And I can almost imagine this. I don't know, he replied. I could not see him. And then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Did they take him to celebrate? Finally, they get it. They understand. This is a celebration. This is something the community is going to celebrate because this deserves a community-wide celebration. Is this why? Nope. Verse 14. 
because it was the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud. You can't work on the Sabbath. And he made mud and healed him. No, 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 no. They didn't take him to the Pharisees to celebrate. No, no, no. They did it to shame the formerly blind beggar even more. Shame on you for being blind and being healed on the Sabbath. They became, the community became the Sabbath police. You should have known better. They were really religious people, this community. They became the religious popo. Don't you know, religious people almost always become the self-appointed religious police. Verse 15. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them. He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Now, I want you to understand, shame is not just an individual thing between us and our shame attendant. No, 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 no. Here we see that we're looking at something even bigger. Not just an individual shame, but a community-based shame cycle. And here, the community as a whole is perpetuating shame. And then in that moment, you know what happens? The community's personal shame attendants get them arguing. Here's what happens, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. And others said, their shame attendants, well, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division among them as all their shame attendants were saying, no, 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 shame, they're going to abandon you. If you don't say the right thing, if you don't believe the right thing, if you don't do the right thing. Verse 17, and then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about the man who healed you? There is no celebrating going on here in this community. This man is facing judgment again and more shame instead of any celebrating in this community. So the man replies, well, if you're asking me, I, I think he must be a prophet. And they just keep the shame coming. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? So now it went from individual shame now it's family shame. And believe me, there's such a thing. Family shame. Verse 20, his parents replied, we do know this is our son. Well, that's a good step. <laughs> and that he was born blind, we can confirm that, verse 21. But we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. Ah, See, here's what's happening. The shame inside of their now family is saying, listen, 
if you're not careful in how you handle this, you are going to be abandoned by God and you're going to be abandoned by this religious system. You see, shame, our attendant, it's his greatest weapon. Here's what his parents said in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They had announced, here's the warning, anyone who is saying that Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. And that's why they said, oh, go ask him. They dropped it back on him. He's old enough. Go ask him. In other words, don't look at us. This is his problem. It's not our family problem. This is his problem. We don't want you guys making us feel any shame. We don't want shame eating our lunch too. Let's just let it happen to him. Go ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man. Now, we don't know how much time uh, elapsed here. But evidently, based upon what happened previously, him saying, I don't, I don't know, he might be a prophet. I don't know who he was. I don't know who he was. I didn't see him. Somehow this man now has new information. There's some kind of integrated relationship between him and Jesus now that didn't exist previously. And listen what happens. For the second time they called him in, the man who had been blind, and they told him, God should get the glory for this. Because we know this man, Jesus, must be a sinner. And here's what he said from his new perspective. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. And then they asked, but what did he do? How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? In other words, hey, listen, guys, I'm following Jesus now because of what happened. And I now know what he looks like. So, by the way, I'm following him. And they cursed him. So here comes more shame. They cursed him. So instead of celebrating the fact that he was blind and now he could see, they continue to heap more and more shame upon this man. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, they said. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. And he says, well, why? That's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. He says, ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. (laughs) Sorry. He said, if this man were not from God, he couldn't have done what he did. And then it's as if the religious community all said together at once, Shame on you, you dirty, blind beggar. Verse 34, you were born a total sinner, they answered. 
you're trying to teach us? This religious community, you're trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Don't miss the significance of that. They threw him out of the synagogue. Think excommunication. Throwing you out of the synagogue is not like dismissing you from a restaurant, kicking you out of a bar. No, 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 no. Throwing you out of the synagogue means you can never come back. And for that religious community at that time, their connection to God was dependent upon being connected to that religious community. The very place that could be part of celebrating and could be part of the healing, instead heaped more shame. And the very community that Jesus set up to be his hands and his feet right here on this earth, that very community called the church, has a tendency to perpetuate shame as well. And I want you to know this. That's why this place exists. That's why Stuttgart Harvest Church and Cole over this morning with the church in Malvern, that's why they are alive today. That's why we exist. Because some of us, maybe all of us, have been shamed by that religious shame cycle that can be perpetuated by this thing called a church. Maybe you were the focus of that shame. Maybe you were part of that shame cycle. Maybe someone you love or someone you care about, a family member perhaps, was part of that cycle that shamed them from a church. And every fiber of your shame management system screams to you that the church is unsafe. Unsafe! Run! Hide! Cover up! Fight! They're just going to abandon you. And you say, I'm not going to be hurt like that again. Exist. Because a handful of people said, "Uh uh-uh. We don't want to repeat that shame cycle. We want to love people the way Jesus loved people. We want to get muddy. And we want to get right down into the middle of that mess the way Jesus did. And we don't care what the community-wide shame attendant is saying. You see, so often churches today, they lead with this. You are a shameful sinner. What did you do? And then almost as an aside, they follow up with, oh, but you know, there is a God in heaven and he loves you. But when we look at 
Jesus in the new covenant? We find Jesus who leads with love. And we have a shame attendant that is hiding inside of us. And we have shame attendants that are hiding inside of our families. And sadly, there are shame attendants that hide inside the church community too. And we want to be aware of all those places that that shame attendant is hiding. And we want to take that loving light of Jesus and shine it into those dark places. And we, as a church, are called to be that because that's what Jesus did. You see, Jesus met a blind beggar who the community, that religious community, they heaped shame upon him. And instead of joining that cycle, Jesus instead gets his hands dirty. And I clearly want to ask you this. Will you be a part of a church, a people, where we are not afraid of their shame and where we are not afraid of what might happen if they reveal to us that shame that they're experiencing. Will you help us create a church family where people can feel safe enough to be vulnerable? Because they believe us that our methods are kind and our methods are compassionate and that we are tender and careful with their shame. Will you be a part of creating a church that is unafraid of the carloads of shame that people might bring here with them? And unafraid of the mess that comes with it. You see, to get there to that point as a church, it is not. It requires heavy lifting. Not because this is complex. No, 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 no. It's because shame is so heavy, and the fear of shame. The fear that they could experience shame if they admit it, that's heavy too. So, many people are afraid of the very community that God put in place to, becomes the, to become the arms and the hands and the feet of Jesus. And you know what? Rightly so, they've become afraid. And for all of that, if you've become afraid of what might happen 
if you truly get vulnerable this time because of what has happened to you related to a church in the past, if that's you, I want to say this. I am so sorry. Whether that wounding that you experience is causing you to be afraid or whether that wounding you experience is causing you to say, I will never take part in a church again. I'll never do that again. Or whether that wounding you experience is saying, okay, I may come into this church community, but I plan to always stay on the edges and never go deep with anybody because that's where the hurt is. Saying, I'm not going to go beyond this. Hi, my name is Harley. That's all. That's as deep as I want to get. There's my name tag. I want you to know this. I am sorry for whatever happened to you and that pain or whatever happened to that person that you care about. So that to the point that your shame management system is screaming that church is unsafe. You see, to really and sincerely admit in our culture today that we don't have it all together that we might be a mess. If you could peek back behind the curtain of my life, I might be a mess. And to admit that is unimaginable. We can't do that. Because maybe we did try and it led somehow to some more shame. So to admit that we don't know something or that we are having problems, that we can't somehow in and of ourselves fix something, and that we're not good enough to admit that we have made a mistake, well, let's just say that vulnerability is not a skill that we naturally possess. In revealing ourselves and allowing that light to be shined in our own lives, we risk being shamed. Because we don't measure up. But right here. This gathering of people. Called Stuttgart Harvest Church. And that gathering over there called the church in Malvern. We are all chasing Jesus together. And I want you to know this. We want to be different. We are a church community as designed by God that is a safe place. And if we can readily confess that we are all doing this imperfectly, but at our core at Stuttgart Harvest Church and the church in Malvern, this is a safe place that throws lifelines to people, not rocks. And we want to empathize with you. We don't ever want to stone you. Will you help us do that? We don't claim to have everything figured out. 
I think I have less figured out today than I did 10 years ago. But on the contrary, we admit we're messy. But at our core, we believe in acceptance. Will you help us to create that? Will you help us to create that? That there is a God who created us and he has pursued us to integrate our lives with his. We're going to talk about that more next week. Don't miss next week. We're just simply asking you this week, will you at our core be a a person who helps us do this? You might ask, how? How? What, what, what can I do? You help create acceptance. The fact that God, Jesus, loves that person that has had shame heaped upon their life. Some of it because of things we have done. Some of it because of things that were done to us. But nonetheless, shame has been heaped on their life. And you can help us create acceptance of that person with conversation. Every time you walk in this building, every time someone else walks in and you make eye contact with them, that you smile because you're glad they're there. Every name tag that you help us write, every door that you open as somebody comes in, no matter who is on the other side of that door, Number, no matter who is on the other side of that name tag. You love them. Will you help us create a community where anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of their present, what's going on right now, that person can safely chase after a future that is centered around Jesus Christ as their Savior. Will you help us? Because I know this. Shame is a liar. But over 2,000 years ago, a blind beggar summed it up when he said this. To the day's best most well-known religious leaders who were pounding him with questions and shame and attempting to heap mountains of shame upon him. This blind beggar said this. I don't know about all that. I don't know everything about how I don't know everything about who, and I don't know everything about why. I can't answer all of your questions. But, he said, I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Your love, your love, your desire to connect with us eternally, your love 
drove you to the cross. And there at the cross, you paid for my sin. And there at the cross, you also, you took care of my shame. And Jesus, I'm asking you, will you help us as a church? And will you help our family at the church in Malvern? Create a safe community where people who have had shame heaped upon their lives can come in and one day trust that they can be vulnerable and begin to find the healing of shame through the cross and through this community that you said, go and be my hands and go and be my feet in this world. Will you help us to be that? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our God. Amen.